Well, we're going to be in the beginning chapters of Genesis. If you want to turn there, I'm going to be reading texts kind of throughout the sermon. I was in Ollie's this week. Ollie's is a store up by the mall. One of my favorite stores because they carry a lot of Christian books. And I found a couple books that I wanted and I went up to the register. And the lady at the register asked me if I would like to support underprivileged children. You know, to donate to underprivileged children. Which I think is sort of manipulative, right? To ask it that way. Because if you, if you say no, you sound like a jerk, don't you? It's like you say no, I hate children. Especially underprivileged ones. Or if you say no, you're thinking, how many people other than me gave today? Maybe they'll be more privileged tomorrow and it won't be a big deal. Have we already solved the problem? You know, you sound like a jerk. It sounds manipulative. I said no, but uh, I uh, still felt like kind of... But I've been bothered by that all week because what has our world come to that stores are trying to get donations because we have so many underprivileged youth that we have this big a problem? And how many other stores are getting involved in that? What, how sad and how broken our world has become when there are that many underprivileged children. When there was so much loss, so much poverty, and murder. Where you turn on the news and all you, you hear all the time about all these gun debates. And I think, whatever side of that issue you're on, isn't it sad that we have to have so much debate about that? That there's so much violence and so much distrust that there's even these questions arising. Wars, sex scandals. Found out in a meeting a few months ago that just in, in Beaver Falls here, at the bridges uh, coming into and out of Beaver Falls, there are about 150 people that live under those bridges. No home, a good percentage of that children that are homeless. That when it's nice in the summer, they live under those bridges. What a cruel and broken world we, we live in. And, and the question that comes to mind is, how will God deal with a broken, sinful world? And the world seems to me to be coming increasingly contrary to God's will and God's character. So what will God do with this world? Interestingly enough, there's an Old Testament text that I think deals with this very issue. Although, even though it's a very familiar story to most of us, we've never thought about it in this way. And that is the story of Noah and the flood. In fact, most of you probably never heard a sermon on Noah and the flood. Because we do it with the children, because it makes a very nice children's sermon. Makes nice children's songs, right? But when you start looking at the story and really diving in and seeing what's going on, it does not make for such good a story. Oftentimes when we deal with it, we might deal with it scientifically. I've heard some talk on that. Whether it did happen, where it happened, how globally was this flood, that sort of question. There's also some critical study of, of the Noah story. Um, for instance, there are other flood narratives that seem to predate the biblical one and how do those relate, or how was this story written down? But this morning, I want to look at the flood story as it is. Put all those sort of side issues aside and just deal with the text and think through, in the context of Genesis, what's going on in this flood story. And the major question, I think, is this. 
The world is getting worse and worse and worse in Genesis. Creation continues to reject God and move further and further away from God. And what will God do about that? What will God's response be? I mean, this, we're in Genesis chapter 6 to start the story. It means we're really close to creation. And what happens after creation? The fall. What do we see after the fall? One generation after the fall, the kids of Adam and Eve, there's murder. As the story goes on, people get worse and worse. And at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, there's even this weird text about the sons of God coming down and uh, procreating with human beings. Kind of this weird, we don't quite know what to make of it, but it seems like evil is just running rampant in the world. A powerful evil, an unnatural evil. And the Lord looks at this and cannot stand by for it. And I start in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God seems cruel here, doesn't he? I'm done. Wipe them out. Start over. Blot them out. Angry, vengeful God might seem. But the key word here, I think, is that God was grieved to the heart. The language here is not language of anger. It's, ang it's language of deep sadness and aching in God's soul. To grieve is like the love of a parent unhappy with the actions and decisions of their children. The need to respond in discipline, but also almost not really wanting to. Regretted making them, yes, but regret, re regretted that because he had been hurt. He had been rejected and he was seeing his creation move further and further away from the plans. He, the text says it so strongly. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart, that's, that's man, human beings, was only evil continually. Seems like an extreme description, but there it is. But we give the introduction of this character named Noah. In fact, this is the first mention of Noah. He, he comes into the story literally that abruptly. We know almost nothing about him. We know not what he does, where he comes from. We just know that he finds favor with God. Verse 9 says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now this... this Almost sounds like Noah is such a good guy that God loves him and decides to spare him. But if you pay real strong attention to the language and the order in the text, that's not what you find. The idea is that God found favor, or that Noah found favor. He didn't earn it. Found means like I sort of stumbled upon it. And actually, if you notice, the favor comes in description before Noah being described as a righteous man. We tend to think, oh, Noah was righteous, so he found favor. But the text seems to imply that he found favor and then was righteous and blameless. Almost as if the, the favor doesn't have very much to do with Noah, 
but has a lot more to do with God. In fact, as we continue, if you continue the story after what we're going to do today, you'll find that Noah and his sons are not perfect people. They are sinners. They are not always right. This favor is definitely God's grace to Noah and to his family. And what we're going to see as we reveal this text, you're going to see Noah as a man who really does walk with God. He's a great example of this for us. I'm picking up in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Cubits are not a real exact measurement, by the way. Normally a measurement from your elbow to your fingertips. And uh, if, we, if we did this, even though people of very different heights, that's generally kind of the same. There's no a foot or a meter back in that day. But a cubit could get you pretty close. So this is a pretty big arc. Make a rib for the arc. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door on the arc in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth and destroy all flesh and in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is, not, that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. I also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah must have sounded pretty crazy. But I also wonder if God might have sounded a little crazy to Noah as well. We, again, we don't know what Noah did. Had Noah ever built a boat before? Does he even know how to build a boat? Or is he really starting from scratch trying to figure this out? Is Noah even near water? Or is he out in the middle of a field building this boat and all the neighbors laughing at him? Must have been strange for him. But it must have been strange also for him to hear what God is about to do. God, you're going to do what? What about my neighbor down the street? What about uncle so-and-so? You're going to drown those people? But Noah doesn't get details. And in the text, he doesn't ask for the details. He just begins to build. Works on it for years until finally the floods come. For 40 days and for 40 nights they come. Rain and rain and rain. I'm in chapter 7, verse 15 now. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there, were, there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. 
The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and rose it high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. All and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land and whose nostrils was breath, the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the part of the story that does not make the children's song, right? We sing the rains came down and the floods came up, but we don't talk about the rains came down and the bodies came up. That's why this is the adult version, because this is what's happening in the story. It's wonderful to hear about the two animals coming into the, to the ark and to Noah being saved, but, but think about underlying that, what's actually happening here. And truthfully, I don't like this. Is there anybody else for whom this idea kind of makes this knot in their stomach? Where they're not quite sure, not quite comfortable what to do with this part of the story. I think that's why the children's part of this story is so prevalent. Because this one is difficult to deal with. We all like the children's version better. It's safer. I mean, I don't mind justice for really bad people. Murderers, pedophiles, rapists. IRS agents. I'm a little kidding on the last one. But this flood's not discerning, right? Men, women, children. God says that this world is just too broken, too evil. All people are thinking about is evil. And we've got to start over. And I can't think of a worse way of dying than drowning. But there it is in the text. I mean, I can understand when bad things happen to bad people, but all those people are that bad? I might be that bad? Difficult to wrestle with. Much lighter to wrestle with, but also not part of the children's story very often, is what it must have been like in the ark. Chapter 8, verse 6 says, At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. And I think to myself, I probably would have opened the window sooner. All those animals in there, this boat whipping around, there's no steering described on the ark. Have you ever thought of that? It just floats upon the sea. And so you got all this flooding, and you're just floating. There's not electricity back in these days. And in the middle of a flood, do you really want a bunch of candles lit up? And you've got all those animals. The question arises, do elephants get seasick? How seasick do elephants get? Who got stuck riding for 50 days next to the different species of pigs? What was the smell like? How bad did the animals fight? And was the lion 
starting to look a little too longingly at the lamb by day 38. What was this like for Noah? If he had never built a boat before, were there some self-doubts, right? I wonder if I built this thing right. I didn't have another engineer to check this out. Being whipped around, taking care of all these animals. I can imagine Noah's captain's log. Day 21, much rain, shoveled manure. Day 25, much rain, shoveled manure. Nobody thinks about that, and it certainly doesn't make it into many of the paintings of Noah's Ark, but this is not a real fun experience for Noah. There's a lesson in here somewhere, I think, about perhaps sometimes it stinks to follow God's plan. But how often do the biblical characters actually get an easy road to God's plan? Have you ever thought about that? No matter what TV preachers want to tell you, I go through the Bible and I see story after story of God's followers who don't understand God's plan, have a lot of reason to question why God's doing what he's doing, and it stinks along the way, and it's rough along the way, and they do it anyway, and even in most cases, without a lot of questioning. And does Noah agree with what God's doing? We never get Noah's reaction, but I wonder, as he's building this ark and people are asking him what's going on, if he doesn't try to hint to people, hey, you should start building a boat too. But friends, family, he's got three sons who have wives whose families don't get to come on the boat. You ever thought about that? Difficult for him. But in the end, Noah and his family are saved, and God makes a promise. I'm in chapter 8, verse 20 now. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and wheat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now I jump now to chapter 9, verse 12 and following. Further a covenant. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between you and between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen, he's talking about the rainbow here, I will remember my covenant that is between you and me and every little living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow in the clouds is in the clouds. I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the beautiful part of the story, God's promise to never do that again. Rainbow in the sky as this reminder. Of course, if you're Noah, maybe if you're us too, it's a little difficult to trust God in this particular moment, right? 
If God was physically capable and emotionally capable of bringing this kind of devastation, can you trust this God? Was this God's attempt at trying to fix people, but it didn't work, so he's got to try something else? Furthermore, has God kept this promise? It may never have been a universal flood, but there certainly have been small floods. How do you read this promise when you're from New Orleans? But when you understand this in the bigger context of what's going on here, as painful it is to look at this context, what you realize is this promise doesn't actually say very much about flooding the earth. Actually, what it says, the promise is about God's relationship with his creation. It's about his relationship with humanity. And it's God's promise that I'm never going to again just wipe everybody out. That's not going to be the plan. So the question is, what is the plan? And can you believe in a God who both in power and personality can do this to so many people? If the story stopped there, if that's all you had, there'd be a lot of room to question. But the story continues. Right after this, we're going to see some different things come down. You're going to see sin still run rampant. But you're also going to see the Tower of Babel where God's going to confuse the language and put sort of this natural limit on how corporate evil can grow because we have trouble communicating. And then God's going to call a man named Abraham just a few chapters later. And he's going to set aside this people, these followers of Abraham that are going to be his covenant people, his way of blessing the world. And eventually, after prophets and kings and priests and all kinds of things, we're going to have Jesus. God's never going to again wipe everybody out because God is going to make a plan and extend grace. It's not that we aren't sinful. It's not that we don't deserve to be punished for sin. But instead of drowning everyone out, this story serves to look at, helps us to look forward to God's new way of doing things which is that God himself is going to come in flesh in Jesus Christ and he's going to be drowned for us on a cross. He's going to come in and he's going to pay that punishment and he's going to make things right by sacrificing himself, not everyone else. But even knowing that, can we admit that sometimes it's hard to trust God? Knowing what God's capable of, maybe, maybe that's part of the purpose of this story. Is to give us a little bit of a healthy sense of fear. That when we come to worship in Sunday morning, we're worshiping a God who is capable of a lot. Maybe we should be careful with this God. Not because God is angry and vengeful. But because we know that we have the possibility of grieving God, of breaking God's heart with our lives. And isn't it difficult in our own lives to trust? Can't we all feel floods and storms? Do we feel like we have God's favor like Noah does when we feel like we're drowning? Do we feel like we are favored by God when we shovel the manure in our own lives? We get afraid. 
our world feels like it's crashing down around us. And I don't have all the answers. And if you're a person that really likes sermons that get kind of neat and answer at the end, I'm really sorry, but I think this text asks a lot of really big questions that it doesn't really answer. It just puts them out there for you to think and to wrestle with. I guess, like Noah, it's just up to us to trust. To ask God to help us when we can't trust. To keep moving forward with the things God has set before us to do, even though sometimes they stink and even though sometimes we don't understand it. To learn to appreciate the days when we actually feel God's favor because there will be many days when we don't feel that. It's my prayer that you would feel the favor of God today, who in the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is with you through whatever you are going through. Let me pray. Lord, you are so powerful that it makes us a little afraid and we don't understand always why you do the things that we do that you do we don't understand why you did this flood thing except that you are an awesome and righteous God and you have to deal with sin we thank you that Jesus came to give us grace to drown for us that we don't have to go through that in the same way forgive us when we think you ought to answer to our logic forgive us when we think that whether we understand you makes that much of a difference. Give us that healthy fear of you, O Lord. And help us to deal with our own sin. To deal with the reality that maybe we need, we deserve to be more drowned. So that as we appreciate that, we may understand more fully your grace. Lord, we did not want to grieve you but we want to serve you, to love you, and worship you for all that you have done in Christ. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.